Hello, Ben Sherwood here again. And yes, we are still talking about COP27. It is still happening for a few more days and it's still so important to be aware of. It's such an important crisis affecting the planet. And today, one of the focuses is on energy, which is a pretty big deal, especially now with a cost of living crisis. It's on a lot of people's minds. Now, last year, I sat down with Mark Gillett from the University of Nottingham, and we were talking about community energy systems. And he had some really interesting ideas, some really cool projects that he's working on with colleagues at the university. And if anything that comes up in this episode or the other episodes we've recently reshared has affected you or you you feel like you've got something you need to say about it, then please feel free to send us a tweet. We'd love to engage with you on this. But otherwise, please, once again, sit back and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Knowledge Engage, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. And welcome to the last in our COP26 themed series. My name's Ben Sherwood, and today I am joined by Mark Gillett. Mark is a professor of sustainable building design here at the University of Nottingham. And today we're largely going to be talking about local community energy systems, including his work on the Trent Basin project, and about how important it is when talking about the climate crisis to consider local communities as well as the bigger picture. Mark, it's brilliant to have you on. Thank you for coming. I was just wondering if you could start off by telling me a little bit about your research, how it came about. Yeah, so my official title is Chair in Sustainable Building Design. Um, I'm the head of the Department of Architecture and Built Environment here at the University of Nottingham. I guess, you know, the question, how did it come about? You know, like most things, a personal interest, a sense of personal responsibility, you know, right back from when I was a teenager, an interest in the environment and, you know, what we can do to to protect the environment. And uh, I've always had an interest in design and buildings, you know, right away from a very, very young age. And I kind of found it really bizarre that we were living in working in buildings that were leaking energy you know and and often not that comfortable and that was even before thinking about the climate issue so it made perfect sense to me to start to think about what I could do you know from an education and research perspective reskilling myself in terms of what I learned quite early on post-university and post-industry experience to understand about environmental issues within the built environment and uh you know, from, from that point onwards, it, it hasn't really stopped. And I've been lucky enough to work with um, some really good people and work with industry to develop some of the first solutions for zero carbon homes. So if we go back to the you know, the turn of, of the millennium and back in 2000, the University of Nottingham were you know, leading in this in terms of working with industry to create a living laboratory on campus of so the David Wilson Millennium Eco House, as it was back then, you know, built in 99, opened in 2000 by David Wilson. And it worked really well as a living laboratory because it's all very well putting technology and designing buildings to be as sustainable as they possibly can using renewable energy. But if people don't want it and can't work with it and live with it, then it's it's a pointless en- endeavour because people tend to have workarounds, um, you know, whatever that might be. So that worked really well. And then we were aware of mid 2000s, you know, work going on at the building research establishment with government to develop something called the code for sustainable homes which was looking at then for every every home builder to be building constructing zero carbon houses by 2016 huge ask actually you know this this went live 2007 and within 10 years for the industry completely to switch over delivering net zero carbon housing and actually the ambition then went on to say by 2018 it would be all non-residential buildings um, zero carbon so great ambition 
And it was, you know, it was great that we were doing that time. And then the industry learned a lot. But unfortunately, those goals and targets, Code for Sustainable Homes, was, was scrapped and never actually happened. You know, whilst we had exemplars like the ones we have on University Park campus, it didn't take off. Now, now the, the issue with that is, of course, that the climate targets are still there. I work within a profession and an academic discipline in terms of the built environment where buildings globally are responsible for 40% of CO2, or nearly 40% of CO2 emissions. 28% of that is in the operation of those buildings and about 11% in the construction of them, the materials, the embodied carbon that goes into that. So, you know, the built environment has a huge part to play in reduction of CO2 emissions, and it can be done. The solutions are there, you know, and it became obvious that potentially the business models aren't there. So in terms of the project I'm going to talk to you today about, you know, the, the Trent Basin Community Energy Project. So it came, I guess that came out about the frustrations I had in industry well, and probably the government at the time turning the back on the aspiration for net zero buildings and code for sustainable homes. And it was deemed too expensive, an additional cost on top of delivery. And, you know, we didn't want to, at the time we were worried about stifling construction and it was, you know, we needed to build, build, build. But ultimately what we build now is, a, is, is the legacy for future generations, not just in terms of the built stock, but also the impact that has on the climate. And it seemed crazy to me that to meet those targets, we'd need to be retrofitting new buildings. I mean, how, how bizarre is that to have to retrofit a new building? Yeah. You know, it's hard enough to retrofit the existing stock you know and that's our biggest challenge actually you know what do we do with our existing buildings and given the locked up embodied carbon within them you know the answer is not demolish them because that then creates even more carbon because of all the lost embodied energy if you like and the need for more embodied energy in replacing those those buildings yeah so we start we you know we're, we're fortunate enough that we've got a really good living laboratory set up on the university park campus with the creative energy homes we started to look at modeling work around how we could look at a new way of doing things so overlaying the energy infrastructure onto the buildings, onto the homes. And rather than homes working in isolation with renewable energy system feeding into that building and then out to the grid or potentially being used in the building, thinking about it as a community asset. By doing things at scale, you reduce cost. By working across numerous users and buildings, you start to manage your load profiles. You get diversity in demand. I guess the way, easiest way of explaining that is a typical home pre-pandemic has an energy spike in the morning as people get up, use the shower, bathe, have their breakfast, then go out to work in the day. So the energy use drops off and then it goes up again in the evening. You know, so from a housing perspective, having photovoltaic panels, PV solar cells on the roof of a house where they're primarily generating in the middle of the day, most of your homes are empty because people are out of work, certainly in a pre-pandemic period. And actually for the homeowner, that's not great because that electricity that's being generated at that point is being exported to the grid typically, where you're getting very little return on it, you know, because you don't export for the same value as you import electricity from the grid. So it's not a great financial transaction. What you want to do is make sure you're using that energy when it's being generated. So maximizing your use of renewable energy. And you can do that better if you've got diversity within the built environment, how you use that. So these sorts of concepts that we had around sharing energy, sharing the energy system, and actually really having an energy provider working hand in hand with the developers. The developer doesn't take on the additional cost of all of this. The developer works with the energy system, so maybe an ESCO, an energy services company, to set up the infrastructure. And then once the development's made and constructed and sold, they can move on to the next project. But the assets, the energy infrastructure that the people living there need is then managed by that company. And it becomes then a potentially a viable business model because you can get investment because you can start to get you can start to pay that back because you've got ownership of it. And actually it de-risks it from an investment perspective, but also means that the capital outlay is paid back over a number of years and the homeowner isn't burdened with that as well. But you're still creating, for me, the most important thing, you're still creating green electrons, electrons that are coming through solar energy or whatever renewable you're using, offsetting carbon through our conventional generation of gas, powered fire stations, whatever it is. 
And, you know, it's great to see, actually, you know, the announcements that the UK government have made recently around decarbonising the power network in the UK, 2035 net zero ambition for that. That would be fantastic because that means everything we put onto the electricity network, you know, and that can be heating, our transport, our cars, that's now coming off a net zero carbon fuel. And for me, one of the biggest challenges that we have in the UK is predominantly our buildings are heated by fossil fuel, by natural gas. We have to get rid of that. So these are the challenges that we're doing at, you know, and addressing at Nottingham, whether that's through the research we do for modelling, but more importantly for us is the real world studies that we do. Working with our living laboratories on campus, but then in the real world, transferring our innovation and knowledge into real world projects to demonstrate how they can be used and then scale up. So whilst we're talking about a project, relatively small-ish development in Nottingham, what we're trying to achieve is a, is a business model and a blueprint for something that could be rolled out in other developments a, a, across the UK and elsewhere, where we can start to empower local communities with community energy schemes. And more importantly, in existing communities, potentially set up something that can remove one of our big barriers to electrification of heating and electric vehicles in the UK. So as we move from gas powered heating, so gas boilers in our homes and buildings, and move away from internal combustion engines, petrol and diesel to electric, that's an awful lot more energy that needs to potentially go onto the electricity network. And the electricity network can't cope. So a low voltage level at the, the substation level within the community, they're designed for you know the current situation. There's not that much capacity to go beyond that to bring all the heating and transport onto there. So smart local energy management, you know, they're, they're the things that we're looking at now, developing new control techniques and algorithms, machine learning and AI infrastructure and research, looking at how we can smartly control these things. So actually the homeowner or the building occupier doesn't have to think about it. And when they switch on the lights, they still come on. You know, we can't have a situation where in the future everyone comes back from work, plugs their car in and then turns the heat pump on to heat their home. The, the, the electricity network won't cope. So we need to be able to smartly manage that. And, and actually, some of the other work we're doing at Nottingham with electric vehicles, for me, the electric vehicle of the future will be part of the built environment energy infrastructure. We'll be plugging our cars into our buildings, into the electricity network, and through V2G, vehicle to grid, bi-directional charging, discharging, your car will be part of that energy infrastructure potentially in the future. So it char it's charged when there's an energy is available and when it's appropriate to do so, but potentially acts as a backup storage system to feed back into the grid, feed back into the building to power your building when the grid can't cope. So you can then use hundreds of thousands of these vehicles and our EVs parked on our drives to reinforce the grid and provide that service. And these are, again, some of the research questions that we're addressing through real world demonstrators through some of our Innovate UK funded work that we have at, at Nottingham. That was probably a long answer for uh, for your first questions. That was very comprehensive. No, no, I don't mind. That was, that was so interesting. There's so many different layers to that. I just really like that mental image at the end there of hundreds of thousands of cars basically being these additional batteries to plug in to the electrical grid. So I guess for people listening to this who aren't familiar with what kind of what happens at a national grid level, you know, the requirement for electricity in the UK is not constant throughout the day and different days of the week, etc. More in the winter, less in the summer. And, uh, you know, so it tends to be a base load during the night as we're not using much electricity. It goes up in the morning, dips off a bit in the afternoon, then goes up significantly in the evening as, as people power up. So and it does that on a on a daily basis, slightly different at the weekend in terms of behaviours, etc. You don't get a flat output. I think probably the, the easiest way to describe this, um, and people probably remember it. Do you remember that, that little uh, black and white flickering thing that used to appear in the corner of your TV set? And that was there for a reason. That was a signal that a commercial break was about to happen and it would notify the power companies to put on additional spinning reserve onto the network to provide more energy into it. And I guess the big event always we used to talk about was the halftime of the FA Cup final when everyone would get up and go and turn the kettles on to make a cup of tea or a, a coffee. So if you think about that, that's a lot of people, you know, millions of people doing all of that activity at once. So the, the grid needs to be prepared for that. So imagine if all of us were to, you know, leave work, 
get home, plug in our cars, six o'clock, our heat pump comes on to heat our homes. That's again, that's a massive increase in the amount of electrical energy that the grid needs to service. So that in a way needs to have smart control and management over it. And, and, and often, you know, I, I drive an electric vehicle. It's very rare that I'm fully on a discharge battery. Um, and, you know, often I'll get home and there's plenty of reserve in it. And, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be unheard of that I could plug it into a home. And, you know, for when the heat pump comes on for that initial bit of the evening, it's, it's actually the car that's running it, you know. And then later on in the night when everyone's asleep, the car's charged so it's ready in the morning. So it's, it's those types of things. But that requires behavioural learning, understanding how the systems are performing and how people are using energy. And, and that's, the, that's the work we're doing at Nottingham because that can then feed into you know the potential for development of machine learning where this happens automatically in the in the background where it's using data to learn about the systems and behaviors to optimize the system and the more and more data we get on that the better and more optimized that can potentially be and this is all needed if we're going to decarbonize the built environment you know bringing in decarbonized heat bringing in decarbonized transport you know more and more data science and digital technologies are really important but equally probably also more important is, is how people interface with those you know i kind of recollect sort of having residence meetings with people that we you know the communities that we work with are really important and ultimately some of the jargon i might be talking about is probably of little interest to most people the most important thing is that they're not getting ripped off with their energy you know it, it's affordable when they press a button things come on you know we've we've come very used to that in the modern era that we live you know a re- reliable energy system is you know i I grew up as a child of the 70s and I do remember, you know, um, having power cuts and lighting candles in the home. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's been a long time since that's been the case here in the UK. Yeah. What you've just said generally just about the community aspect. And you're right about that. That is the stuff that people care about at the end of the day. And hearing you say that is really refreshing because it really feels at the moment that a lot of what we hear about the climate crisis, about the work being done and the promises being made. It's all this kind of high up level above everyone's heads. So it's just really nice hearing you talk about working with a local community and recognising what it is that they care about. Thank you for doing that. It's just really nice. I think living in Nottingham, we're also privileged to be in a city where the local authority, the, the city council, have really gone out above and beyond and said, actually, our, our net zero target is going to be 2028. And there's some very passionate leaders within the city that are, are pushing for that and, and deeply believe in it. And, you know, Nottingham comes from a good point to start. You know, we're one of the most energy, or if not the most energy self-sufficient uh, core city in the country, you know, largest district heat network in the UK. Some really great exemplar projects in terms of building retrofit and solar PV installations across the city all the work that's happening on sustainable transport as well you know so as a university it's good to be located within a city that you know that has that civic ambition to meet those targets within a, a very short period of time yeah agreed i just want to ask you as well like earlier on you were talking about how currently built homes are very much run to work on fossil fuels and i know you mentioned about decarbonizing various aspects of the system and i'm just wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about what the specific challenges might be with the decarbonizing of heat supplies in people's homes because obviously that's going to be the thing that impacts local communities on a personal level so yeah what would you say the biggest challenges there are i think regardless of i often say this regardless of whether you're a climate champion or not for me energy efficiency in homes is a win-win because it's not just mitigating climate change through carbon emissions it's about creating comfortable buildings to live in in terms of the temperature and the spaces that we occupy it's also about more money in your pocket because you're reducing your fuel bills so there's a bit of a win-win there on comfort on on money and also on climate so there's a there's that triple whammy if you like if you can do it and there's absolutely we should be doing it on new builds you know let's let's hope the latest iteration of building regulations push for that you know and let's hope we get to a point where we're not permitting new gas connections. Again, that's retrofitting a gas connected heating system seems crazy. Let's just not put them in now. So let's design our, build, our new buildings to work well with a low carbon heating system. So that's relatively easy. 
So the thing about heat pumps, uh, think about a heat pump as a kind of, I guess a domestic refrigerator is probably the easiest thing that people would uh, <laughs> would, would think about because often they're a vapor compression cycle. So it's, you know, think of it, your refrigerator, it's taking heat out of the internal compartment to cool your food. But if you go around the back of the fridge, there's a condenser coil at the back of the fridge and the heat that's taken out is being expelled to the air through that coil on the back. So it's hot at the back, cold inside. And the same thing's happening with a heat pump. It's taking the energy out of the air. So it cools it on an air source heat pump. And then it puts that thermal energy through a vapor compression cycle into your hot water or into your space heating in your building or it might be taking it out of a river a lake or out of the ground if it's a ground source heat pump so you're very simply that's kind of what a heat pump's doing it's a very efficient way of electrically heating your home the thing about them is you, you want your temperature differential to be relatively small to be make them more efficient so we've become accustomed to you know right the way through from in, in history we would burn fuel to heat our living spaces you know whether that was burning wood or burning coal you look at the Victorian homes that we have, our legacy properties, nearly every room potentially in most Victorian homes would have had a fireplace for heating those spaces. And that would have been predominantly coal, of course, which, you know, the UK led on in terms of the Industrial Revolution, etc. So our homes are built around individual high temperature systems. And then we moved into central heating systems, which again was burning gas and that heats your water to a relatively high temperature. And that goes through your radiators and comes out into your hot water cylinders, come out your tap. And ironically, with our hot water that we store in a hot water cylinder, it's usually kept at a temperature that's far too hot to use and you'd burn your hands. So you cool it down with your cold tap. So there's an inefficiency yeah. there in reality. You know, you, you never really get under a shower typically with your heating system, turn on the hot and you don't balance it with cold to make it bearable in terms of the temperature. So there's, you know, we often heat our water to a level that's higher than it needs to be. And there's other reasons for that, you know, in terms of prevention of Legionella, et cetera, but you can get around those and overcome those issues. So going back to the question, you know, what's the big challenge? So we're talking about with heat pumps particularly, which are going to be a big part of the future. You need to drive down your heat loss in your building. So improve the efficiency of that. And that's often difficult with particularly heritage buildings, buildings in conservation zones, solid wall properties. There's, you know, there's not every building can insulate. So that's quite a big, big challenge in terms of how you might do that, whether it's external, internal insulation. But ultimately, you're, you're trying to drive it down so that the heat pump works at a much lower temperature because they do tend to work at a lower temperature. There are other ways around it. I mean, switching over to conventional radiators is probably not the best thing for it. Well, it isn't the best thing for an old property because we work on the premises of a high temperature heat exchange, a radiator but a small surface area relative to the room size. Because it's a high temperature, it can kick out all that energy. When you work at lower temperature, to kick out the same amount of energy, you need a bigger heat exchanger. So radiators tend to have, you know, for a heat pump system where you're in a less efficient building, you probably have fan-assisted or a larger surface area. And ideally, potentially, you know, the best way of doing it is through underfloor heating because you're using a very, very large heated surface there where you can work at much lower temperatures to enable that to happen. But it's important that with everything we do, we minimise our energy use. So it's reduce, you know, go back to that thing, reduce, reuse, recycle. But with an energy perspective within a building, it's energy efficiency first. So we minimise the amount of energy that we're going to use in our design or in our retrofit of our homes. And then we can get to a point where we can put on a low carbon heating system or low carbon generation on top of that. So that's the key thing. And a lot of it, actually, you know, when you talk to people about what's the best thing I can do, you know, the majority of our carbon emissions come from space heating and gas use associated with space heating and hot water. You know, so hot water production, heating our rooms is, is the key contributor in the UK. The best thing we could do then is insulate. You know, and it's not a shiny windmill or a PV system on the roof of your building. It's actually something really boring like glass wool or, you know, <laughs> insulation materials that you put in your wall and your roof, that fiberglass in the loft. You're making sure that you do that to drive down the energy use. And of course, in, and reduce your fuel bills significantly. But by reducing heat loss to a certain level, you can then get to a point where heat pump makes perfect sense. And then you can start to run on electricity, which, as we've already seen, you know, there's big commitments coming through from, from COP26 to, you know, globally to reduce the carbon emissions from our power networks. So if yeah. we've got a, a carbon-free power network, then everything on electricity is a good thing. 
yeah and that sounds like it would be absolutely incredible <laughs> so i sincerely hope we get there thank you so much for that mark that was really interesting so i'm wondering now if the people listening wanted to go away and find out more about your projects and everything you've spoken about where would you recommend they go and look so I guess the easiest place is on, on the, the World Wide Web, as, as everything is. So, you know, the University of Nottingham Energy Institute is a good starting point just to look at the breadth and depth of uh, energy research we're doing in our buildings and energy research is on there. In terms of the specific Trent Payson community project that I've spoken about, era.ac.uk, because uh, a lot of it was funded through the Energy Research Accelerator and our own project website that we've got online, which is projectscene.uk has a lot more information on. And then there's, there's, there's quite a few YouTube videos out there as well that conceptualise and explain in a bit more detail what we've been doing and, and uh, the research that we're undertaking. Oh, brilliant. Well, I will make sure there are links to all of those in the description to the show. So thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for listening to Knowledge Engaged. If you'd like to find out more about the topics we discussed during the episode, you'll find all of the links you need in the show notes.